In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today. We discuss the latest updates from the battlefront, analyse Saturday evening's deadly bomb attack on the outskirts of Moscow, and we welcome former NATO battalion commander Hamish de Breton Gordon to talk about the ongoing risks to the Zaporizhia nuclear power station. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 22nd of August, day 180. And today I'm joined by the Telegraph's Defence and Security Editor, Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor, Francis Sternley, and the former commander of NATO's Rapid Reaction CBRN, that's Chemical, Biological, Radiological and Nuclear Battalion, Hamish de Breton Gordon. I started off by asking Dom for the latest news from the war zone. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hamish. Great to have you back. Uh, it's busy, busy weekend. Lots going on. I won't. Uh, I'll try to take a skip through the news. Won't dwell too much because there's there's a lot going on. But basically, there was a drone strike on Saturday on the the, the Sevastopol headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet. Now it didn't didn't seem to do much it damaged the building a bit but there's lots of footage on social media of uh, of the drone and of, of russians firing into the air this is a day a daylight attack um lots of people filming it interesting that i'll come back to that you know do it in daylight so that people film it and put it out on social media channels separately it was a russian soldier in melitopol was killed by partisans he um there's various reports he was attacking a woman or a child and was himself assaulted uh, and killed uh, the center for national resistance uh, which was established by the Ukrainian government to coordinate and support uh, partisan activities, said on their website that they took responsibility for that and uh, and said that other Russian uh, occupiers would would meet similar fate. Um, and uh, and also there was a there was another strike, suspected Ukrainian strike, on uh, an arms storage site in uh, forgive the forgive the pronunciation please Chornobyka, which is on the just on the north edge northwest edge of Kherson city itself so so right down in the Kherson front and this was there were self-propelled guns tanks armor fighting vehicles destroyed in that attack and there were reports of dozens of russian casualties as well now i say those three things quickly not to rattle through the news but just to say that this is, i think is adding to a climate of fear um, in in Russian Russian forces and possibly also Russian society, the more these things are filmed, the more these things are able to be filmed and are then posted on Russian social media channels, the more it adds to this climate of fear. We're going to talk about the the assassination of Dario Dugina in a minute. Uh, Francis will lead on that, but I just want to just hold in the back of your thoughts, back of your minds that that this momentum, some of these attacks. Okay, the the, the attack on the weapons storage site sounds sounds pretty big, um, but the other attacks. Are, are very very small and in the middle of a war we didn't, wouldn't ordinarily talk about the killing of one particular soldier but I think the, the fact that it was partisan activity and they've been very open about claiming responsibility for that I think is quite interesting and it just adds I think to this momentum Ukraine's momentum it shows firstly it shows momentum and it shows that they are able to conduct these strikes by day by by day and night um, across the whole spectrum of of conflict and geography so it, it's it's interesting what I think Ukraine is aiming to do here to 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 give this idea that that, that Russia just can't can't deal with this. And as I say, we'll talk about the assassination in a minute. But but whatever that turns out to be, um, could add could add to this. I think uh, we should note it's also been 
it's been very violent from uh, the Russian side. There have been a lot of strikes in the east around the Donbass and in the south. And in particular, um, there's been a lot of firing uh, near the nuclear power plants at Zaporizhia. And Hamish is going to tell us a little bit more about that in a minute. And also the South Ukraine nuclear power plant at Vonizhensk. Again, apologies for the for the pronunciation, which is just north, north-northwest of Mykolaiv. Um, so, again, these, these civil nuclear facilities that are now increasingly, if not directly targeted, and we can have a question and have a discussion about that, but certainly uh, coming under coming under fire. Uh, but more more from that, I'm sure, on Hamish and more from the, uh, the assassination uh, in a minute. Thanks, Dom. Francis, I know you had a few comments uh, just to add to Dom's uh, roundup there. Thank you. Yes. Good afternoon, everyone. I, I just want to echo, first of all, what Don was saying there about the ramping up and escalation in, in, in intentions over recent days. Uh, it's been, I think, very noteworthy indeed, seeing just quite how much has happened over the weekend. And it just goes to show that just when you think things have, have reached a, a sort of a certain level, um, it, suddenly things can very much flare up again. And that's indeed what we've seen um, in, the, in the past uh, couple of days or so. Um, I just wanted to, to pick on one other element of the military side of things, taking perhaps a little bit more of a, of a longer term perspective, more broad brush approach based on the comments of Mike Hurtling, who's the former commanding general of the US Army Europe, who's made some interesting remarks on Twitter in the past 24 hours or so. And he, in this, uh, in quite a long thread, just details basically what's happened in the war so far and where we're at as far as he's concerned, looking at this as a military analyst, strategist, etc. And uh, his comments, I think, on, on the Ukrainian situation are, are, are very interesting. Essentially, he says that Ukraine has shown that whilst it's well, relatively well-trained, well-led and has high morale and, and has considerable support from their government, it's still obviously the, the, the challenge that they are facing in the longer term is going to be launching large-scale operations. And clearly, as we're seeing, that they're not yet capable of doing that. We've talked so much about the about the counterattack that's been expected around Kazan and in the south. And whilst we've seen incremental stages towards that, we have not yet seen that, um, that large-scale operation that some were predicting. However, and he goes on and says that um, whilst they are, they're not able to do it yet, that, that, that in the longer term, he expects that they will be able to, that they are better at adapting, that they're still training, they're incorporating new uh, equipment, which, of course, is still arriving from the West every day. And at the moment, he thinks what's going on is they are prepping the battlefield, his words, conducting limited counterattacks and guerrilla operations that contribute to the early stages of a counteroffensive, because that's essentially what they're capable of doing at the present moment. But that will change soon, implicating, Im- implying that there will be, they will have the capacity to, to launch um, large-scale operations, but it will take time. My only observation coming off the back of that, of course, is that does Ukraine have that time? As we were talking about last week, uh, when you look at the increasing pressures in the West of, of the consequences of this war, particularly on energy prices, we've just seen a breaking story today that energy costs are now going up 16% across Europe, and of course that's expected to rise will they there will of course inevitably be increasing pressure on 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 ukraine to show that they have the long-term strategy the long-term success in mind here um uh, that 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 will enable um that the the west to continue supporting them thinking that the long-term opportunities for success so um i just think i just wanted to to make that point there's some very interesting remarks by mike hurtling but does ukraine have the time let's hope so but i think um that remains to be seen Thank you very much, um, Francis. We, we will talk about the uh, the car bomb attack in Moscow later. I'd just like to bring in Hamish Breton-Gordon at this point. So I know, Hamish, you're, um, you do have to go by half past. Um, we've spoken about some of these attacks near nuclear plants. Can you update us on the situation and just tell us how, how your latest thoughts on what's happening? Yes. Um, <clears throat> good afternoon, everybody. Uh, yes, again, over the weekend, very much the nuclear power stations in the news. I suppose the positive thing that, that came out at the end of last week was that uh, uh, Putin, in discussions with Macron, has agreed that there should be international inspectors allowed into Zaporizhia. Unfortunately, there's no time zone uh, or time given to that. One assumes it'll be the International Atomic Energy Agency who would go there. Now, this would be a very positive step. Um, you know, I in the past, and, and we discussed last week of, you know, actually Zaporizhia is almost uh, developing a, as as a sort of improvised 
nuclear device. And when you hear about the momentum appearing to swing in in the Ukraine uh, direction, then these sort of unconventional type potential weapons become you know even more concerning. We've heard over the weekend as well that there'd be more strikes, missile strikes, artillery in the vicinity uh, of Zaporizhia, and uh, and only today, and also extended further. I think the, the other things to consider, of course, the, the Russians are talking about turning off Zaporizhia, which provides in good times about 20% of the power um, to Ukraine. But turning off a nuclear power station you know, is, is not an inconsiderable activity that would take days and weeks of planning. Um, and if it's not done properly, can create real problems. Uh, a lot of people are, have been discussing aware the issue with cooling of spent fuel rods. Um, if the power to that goes, then one could have a problem there. I, I would also like to state that there is a lot of talk about these bombs and rockets creating some sort of um, nuclear meltdown and explosion. This is highly unlikely. Uh, these reactors are incredibly um, strongly built with concrete uh, covers over them. So it would be unlikely that that would cause a problem. However, we've also heard that uh, the Russian general Vasiliev, who understands also a senior GRU officer, who seems to be in control of the area, has claimed uh, in various areas that, that the reactors have been wired with explosives to explode. If that did happen, then that would create a huge um, potential problem. So we we haven't really got much further on, on this particular side. Um, we don't know when those inspectors are in. They sh Ideally, they should be in sort of next week, but I don't suppose that's going to happen. The only other thing, and I'm sure you're going to discuss it later, with Ukraine Independence Day on Wednesday and lots of talk about spectaculars, um, what one is one absolutely hopes that Zaporizhia isn't part of this, but again, it does raise the tempo. And I think going back to one of the original points, you know, as the tide moves against the Russians and their conventional warfare, which you have discussed so articulately earlier on and, and before, appears to be stumbling, then the unconventional asymmetric, no doubt, will become uh, more uh, more of a view that uh, the Russians might start to do that. Because I personally think, and I think a lot of people do, that Putin absolutely can't afford to fail in Ukraine. Otherwise, he's gone. Okay. Hamish, may I, may I jump in quickly and ask a question? Um, grain. Now, why did Putin allow the grain to, to get out? There's some suggestion that actually it's all part of a master plan that he, he wants the ships gone so he can start bunging missiles in there with very little risk of, of an international blowback by hitting international shipping. Or he was forced to diplomatically to, to have to do that. He just had, had nowhere else to go. The, the issue became too, too, um, uh, too much on the international agenda. Is the nuclear issue in that similar league, i.e. is there so much pressure now for the IAEA to go in that Putin has to allow something? Or does, does he have wiggle room? Uh, or am I looking at it completely wrong? Is he just doesn't he just doesn't feel the pressure, or if he if he feels the pressure, just ignores it because there's too much of a of an operational bonus to him, operational benefit by holding and threatening and risk, holding at risk these these nuclear power plants. Uh, Tom, I, I I absolutely agree with you. I think that's the case. Um, you know, in these strategic manoeuvres and movements, um, uh, it would appear that Putin doesn't hold a lot of ace cards at the moment. The grain um, that is beginning to trickle out now, um, but but it, but it's it's very slowly, and it, it it gives him leverage over the West, and and absolutely, I think nuclear power is in in that entirely. We've heard all about the false flag, you know, the false flag chemical and biological attacks at the early part of the uh, war, which you know very happily have, have have sort of dissipated now, but exactly the same with nuclear. You know, that is the one thing that is, I think, holding the world at arm's length. You speak to anybody in this country, you know, I speak to a lot of people over the weekend who, who are really, really scared about the nuclear peace. You know, on the one hand, people say, you know, are we scaremongering, you know, talking about it? 
on the on the other hand, you know, if we don't talk about it and put in mitigation to make sure that if there is some accident and disaster, it, it doesn't affect us as badly as it could do, then you know, you're you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. But absolutely, I think this is key to uh, Putin's plans. And I've talked about the unconventional type warfare, which I I saw a lot of in Syria, in in that particular case, sort of blowing up uh, chemical factories to create a hazard. And and, um, we've already seen that in Ukraine on a number of occasions. And that was uh, with my time with the Peshmerga fighting ISIS back in, in 2015 and 17, they uh, blew up uh, chemical factories and plants, most famously Al Mishrak, south of Mosul, which had a strategic effect on operations. You know, without going too much detail, it sort of derailed the Iraqi army for a few weeks. So, so these unconventional methods, you know, really have a psychological impact as well as potentially a tactical. And with the whole chem, bio, and nuclear thing, the psychological is ten as to one the physical, and somebody like Putin is, you know, with his background in, in the GIU and FSB, he will under, he understands better the sort of strategic mind games I expect the most. And, and nuclear for him, I expect, is his gold card. And that's why we, we have to approach it with such seriousness, not try and terrify everybody out of their seats in this country and elsewhere, but just make sure that this is something we need to resolve as an international community, um, because if there is an accident, deliberate or whatever, with Zaporizhia, I personally believe that could bring NATO directly into this war rather than indirectly. Great. Thank you. Um, terrifying, but thank you. And just finally, so the IAEA, EIEO, IAEA, um, can you give us a quick skit on that, please? How big is it? What teeth does it have? Can it actually do anything here? Well, Dom, in normal times, it, it, it you know it is the world's agency for ensuring nuclear security, and the, the IEA could go to any nuclear uh, site around the world. Uh, this is the power stations. Uh, we're not talking about nuclear weapons here, and ensure that they're safety. So all the nuclear power stations in the UK will be inspected on a regular basis, and advice given on how to make sure that they're safe, and. Uh, you, you know, with with the members of of the International Atomic Agency, which is all the nuclear um, producers in the world, including Russia, um, they should, in theory, have free reign to go ever, anywhere they like to ensure safety, and that happens pretty much all over the place. But of course, in a war zone, that is slightly different, and I don't think any of us really envisaged that nuclear power stations would be fought over, because apart from the IEA. Also, the Geneva Convention and the rules of war protects nuclear power stations. But uh, we've seen with the Russian uh, troops now stationed around Zaporizhia and the fighting going on there, you know, they have complete disregard for that. So in theory, the International Atomic Energy Agency should be able to get in there and should be able to uh, do a complete safety check. If there is anything malign or malicious there, you know, one would expect to see the Russians sort of cleaning it up and sorting it out in the next few weeks. But they will know well that, you know, every satellite available to the West will be having, will be absolutely peering down on Zaporizhia to see what's happening. So if they do get in there in the next few weeks, that is a really good thing because they will be able to have a deep look. And in theory, they should be able to go there whenever they like. But, you know, I... I, I might be super cynical, but, you know, Putin is not necessarily always good to his word. Hamish, just a question from me. From from your experience leading NATO's CBRN battalion, what, what kind of things do you think the Ukrainian armed forces and civilians should be doing in the light of this risk? I mean, what, what kind of... Uh, tactics or um, thinking more long term, you know, what, what kind of, yeah, what kind of action should they be taking? Well, uh, that's a really good question. And you know, the Ukrainian people are very, very concerned about this and about the whole CBRN piece. You know, they, they, these people who are steeped in the old Soviet Union, where, where chemical, biological and nuclear was a key part of the weaponry of these places, you know, a lot of people have grown up about it and know about it. And, uh, and actually, I've, I've um, published 
the last chapter in, in my own memoir, which is about surviving chemical, biological and nuclear attacks in Ukraine, in, in Ukraine and, and a lot of people have that. We've also made a, um, a, a, an app on what to do in the event of um, some sort of disaster like this. And, and again, without wanting to scaremonger, there is an awful lot you can do. You know, the sort of fallout that you would get if there is a fire or an accident at Zaporizhia, we sort of know where it will go. And the meteorological agency from Ukraine issued that, I think, maybe late last week or over the weekend, showing where the radiation is likely to go. And at the moment, it's all likely to go west, which, um, you know, there, I've heard some people say, well, the Russians would never create an accident here because it would go to Russia. Well, you know, on on the current climate at the moment and for the next few days or weeks, it's all going west. Now, they can get out of the way of that. And actually, you know, right in the immediate aftermath, you, you sort of get undercover um, because, uh, you know, radiation will stick to things uh, and all the rest of it. Um, so there is an awful lot that you can do to prepare yourself. And hopefully people have a rough idea, not only not only because of their background, but there are other people like me who are trying to make sure that people have a, an idea of, of what they can do to survive. I mean, it's 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 a bit like soldiers and bombs and bullets. You know, you know how you can sort of um, survive in this context. I absolutely, you, there are, are, are few people with my background because thankfully CBRN has something that is little used um, for many, many years. But uh, we're trying to get the message out across as we did in Syria. Um, and so people have a rough idea. But but the main thing is is to, you know, make sure that these accidents, disasters or deliberate use of CBRN just doesn't happen. And as Dom highlighted earlier, this, you know, this is a potential gold card that Putin has to wave. And it's it's very important, the international community, which I might say, apart from a few leaders, I think have been pretty quiet over the last few weeks. Let's hope they're all back from their holidays now and absolutely focus on this. Get us past Independence Day on Wednesday and then hopefully get those inspectors in so we can ramp down the threat of any dreadful nuclear accident or deliberate use of um, nuclear uh, power stations as some sort of improvised weapon. Thanks, Hamish. I think uh, Francis had a question as well. Yes. Hi, Hamish. Um, fascinating to hear your perspective on this. I, my, my, I've got a sort of question and, and then a, a, a comment, really. My first question is, if you were in charge, if you were a, a, a advising say the british government now or government in ukraine would you be saying and calling for a return to the kind of advice that was being given to citizens during the cold war about what to do if there is a nuclear incident of some kind um again that's a really good question Uh, and i i I wrote about it in the telegraph i think about a week ago that perhaps we we need to dust off our measures for potential nuclear accident or, or attack which you know, quite rightly, since the end of the Cold War, uh, we we have really put our, all our defensive and protective measures to bed because, you know, one, the, the start, the, the, the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons was going very well. Uh, and there was, you know, the, the threat was rescinding. Uh, and it's just that Ukraine has obviously changed all that. Uh, uh, you know, the Russians have threatened the use of strategic and tactical nuclear weapons. But, you know, I'm hopefully fairly confident that our own uh, nuclear weapons would prevent that happening. Um, but it's the accident thing that, that is a concern. And you, if you're old enough, probably none of you are old enough to remember the Cold War when we used to have sort of black and white BBC films every now and again, just sort of reminding you what to do in the event of an attack and just giving you some sort of idea. I think it's a fine very fine sort of line between getting people really terrified or reassuring them. The only thing I, you know, back in the Cold War days, I think our parents and grandparents were reassured rather than terrified. Um, so I think it is worth dusting off. And of course, you know, if if that uh, Zaporizhia is there is an accident and there is mass contamination, um, you know, it could be a lot worse than Chernobyl. Um, and we sort of know that some of it is going to come our way. 
And although, you know, there are agencies in this country who, you know, really understand what to do, um, it, it might be worth just reminding the public um, what to do. Uh, but again, I accept that it is a fine balance between scaremongering and reassurance. And just a couple of observations based on what you were saying, Hamish. I mean, the first thing I think to just comment is that this is this horrendous crisis is all a consequence of Putin's actions in Ukraine. I mean, the very fact that we're having this conversation shows far, how far things have escalated since February and just quite how serious what has happened um, continues to be. Just one other observation I had picking pick up on what you were saying. Clearly, nuclear, whether in energy form or as a weapon, is, as you say, Putin's gold card. And it seems to me that the central question now that the West has to be asking itself and should have been asking itself from the beginning, if it hasn't been, is how do we neutralise that? On the one hand, on the energy, of course, we've talked about the EU manoeuvres to try and wean itself off, off Russian energy, which, which is um, mostly gas, but still it's part of this energy question. And not, But not only that, on the weaponry side of things, I've spoken on the podcast in the past that it seems to me that, that the very fact that, that there is this sort of nuclear threat of, of, of escalation is basically what stopped the West intervening in Ukraine in terms of direct military action. It's what stopped the no-fly zone not taking place. It's what stopped there being tanks sent in or soldiers, which I think they would have been were it not for that 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 threat of um, of there being um, nuclear weapons used. And as I say, I think that we've basically just accepted that narrative that, oh, well, you know, there's nothing you can do. He's got these weapons and, and that's that. But I, I feel still that there, is, there are conversations to be sat, had that can could make that threat neutralised or at least greatly reduced if it is made much more clear to Russia what it would mean if any kind of weapon were utilised. I mean, you could be talking already about, as I've spoken in the past, you could be saying what exactly what, what would happen in the eventuality of such a weapon being used, that all of Europe would immediately cease any uh, purchasing of Russian energy, for instance. You could have a, some sort of arrangement with other powers around the world that they would immediately cease um, uh, trading or doing any deals with, with Russia whatsoever. I mean, it is not in the world's interest for there to be to, for us to be having conversations like this right now. And yet it seems that we are, we are having these conversations as a direct consequence of Putin's callousness and, and where we are at this, at this present moment in the war. So as I say, not less of a question, but more of an observation based on what you're saying, but perhaps you have some thoughts on that. Well, I do. And I, I absolutely agree with you. You know, we, we, unfortunately, we could discuss this today, but I'm, funny, I've just been writing a piece on, on this sort of issue. And it's slightly, yesterday was the ninth year anniversary of the massive uh, sarin attack in Ghouta in Syria. And when Obama's red line disappeared, and basically, we didn't do very much. Now, I think wind forward nine years, that has emboldened people like Putin because, you know, we had said back then, if you use chemical weapons, Terry. that will go beyond the pale and we will absolutely hammer you. Now, nothing happened then. And I think, <clears> you know, Putin didn't expect the West to do an awful lot when he invaded um, Ukraine back in February. Uh, so all the time, up until February, we've been sending the wrong messages. And I agree with you entirely. We, we, Putin needs to be absolutely certain that if he uses, you know, even his smallest nuclear weapon, you know, he will get it back in spades uh, from the West because it is a nobody's, you know, a nuclear war is absolutely in nobody's interest at all. And, um, and one gets the feeling still that uh, the Russians are not entirely convinced that the West has the stomach for this, you know, or, or the stomach for completely you know, cutting Russia off, as you said. And I hope that with our Western leaders and leaders around the world now coming, you know, coming back on the stage, as it were, that they make that absolutely clear to, to Russia and to Putin and probably more importantly, those around him, because, um, you know, one, one, one feels there must be some checks and balances um, within uh, Russia to make sure that, you know, Putin doesn't have a rush of blood and, and head for the red button, which which I think there are. I mean, I, I you know, lots of people are worried that he might, you know, wake up one night and press the red button. That that just would not happen and cannot happen as it, it couldn't happen anywhere around the world. But but we are where we are, I think, because of our lack of activity in Syria over the last nine years. And we, we need to regain ourselves. And it's it's really a chance, you know, NATO has got to provide that direction and leadership and um you know, we in the UK, which, you know, I'm 
absolutely provide sort of work with people in Ukraine. You know, they are so thankful with the efforts that we put um, towards Ukraine and supplying them with, you know, uh, weaponry and intelligence and all the rest of it. But we, we must really stand firm now because quite, you know, the, the cost of living crisis, global warming, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, if things go wrong, badly wrong in Ukraine and we do get into a nuclear conflict, you know, all, all those other issues that will become horrifically irrelevant. Thank you very much, Hamish. Hamish, is there, we realise you have to go now. Is there anything you, you haven't mentioned that you think is worth uh, talking about? Well, I, I, just, you know, I, I know that people get terrified by the whole sort of CBRN nuclear debate. Um, and, and some people say, well, you know, you shouldn't talk about it. Stick your head in the sand and it won't happen. I just, you know, really my last point that, you know, th- this is such an important thing that we must all absolutely focus on it. To, to, to get it right. But but also, you know, to the people in Ukraine, you know, there it is, you know, if there is a big accident at Zaporizhia or or, you know, Russia decides to use chemical or biological weapons, yeah, you know, there are there are things you can do. It is the threat that you ignore or you don't recognise that is the one that is really going to trip you up. So I think we're in a position now where we must make sure that people have everything they can to to, to survive. And we must make sure our world leaders absolutely get on this and uh, make sure that Putin understands the consequences of his potential actions in this area. Well, thank you very much, Hamish de Breton-Gordon, for joining us uh, this week. Thank you for all of your thoughts. are hugely, hugely welcome. Um, there are other updates we haven't spoken about. Um, over the weekend, there was a car bomb attack in Moscow, killed a prominent pro-war ideologue. Um, Francis, can you talk to this? What happened and uh, what's the latest on that? Yes, well, this is a really big story for for, for many reasons. Um, first of all, I think the headline is, yes, there was this car bomb attack in Moscow, which has killed uh, the daughter of a very prom, prominent uh, nationalist ideologue in Russia called Alexander Dugin. I'll talk a little bit about him in a moment. Though it's worth saying that the his daughter is also um, a very prominent uh, advocate for the war in Ukraine. She's a journalist um, that, that, that's under sanctions in the West and has been a cheerleader for, for what's been going on in recent months. Um, uh, she, she's been described as a frequent and high profile contributor of disinformation in relation to Ukraine and the Russian invasion. Um, but the this, the significance of this, of course, is the initial escalationary impact in terms of this is something that has occurred in relation to the war um, on Russian soil and very close to to the centre of power in Moscow, not only in Moscow, but actually geographically within Moscow. It's where a lot of prominent Russian politicians live. So this will inevitably um, um, cause concern from their perspective. Um, uh, who is Dujin, whose daughter has died? Well, as I say, he's a very com- prominent um, um, commentator as far as Western um, observers are concerned, although less so, I think it's important to be said, um, in Russia itself. Um, he published a book in 1997 called The Foundations of Geopolitics, where it effectively outlined his worldview, which is calls for Russia to rebuild its influences through conquest, essentially, and challenging um, the, the the United States empire, of which he sees sort of Western Europe as as being a being a part. But he's written on all sorts of of, of, of subjects, whether it be philosophical or political theory, and uh, as I say. Whilst he's been known in Russia, he is clearly a, a, a figure that is, that is talked about. He is not this huge... Uh, um, I mean, there's been conversations, remarks made in, in the last 24 hours that he's Putin's Rasputin um, or that he's Putin's sort of chief philosopher. I, I don't think either of those things are true. And, and reading analysis by, by um, many uh, commentators, um, in, in Pu- including a piece um, by um, by Mark uh, Galilotti in, in The Spectator over the weekend that just underlines uh, the fact that he isn't this um, this great uh, um, influential powerhouse within the Russian state, that actually he's he's uh, somebody who's very much on the outlier and and indeed um, has, has really been frozen out by the Kremlin for some time. But nonetheless, I think we can read 
predict certain outcomes that are likely to come as as a consequence of this, regardless of who is responsible. It's important to say, I think, that um, in the last sort of 20 minutes or so, the Russian FSB, their intelligence services, have officially accused uh, Ukraine's spy, we- spy network as being responsible for the attack. Ukraine has already denied involvement, saying that, quote, we are not a criminal state like the Russian Federation. Um, so we don't actually know who is responsible for this. Um, some are, as I say, are blaming Kiev. Most, most likely the, uh, the Russia will continue to do so. Some are um, saying that it was actually a Kremlin hit designed to lay the foundations for further aggression in uh, Ukraine. There's some that actually, some commentators are saying actually has neither, nothing really to do with the war at all, that it may well be internal divisions within the Russian state, something like contract killing to do with um, politics and business disputes rather than... And anything sort of bigger than that. So there's there's lots of things. But as I say, the real thing we can talk about is what li- the likely outcomes are of this. And I think it's fair to say that it will lead almost certainly or be utilised by the Russian state as a justification for whatever actions they do in Ukraine in the coming days and weeks, um, saying that this is, uh, as I say, a, 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 an example of how the war is now a direct threat to elements of the Russian state. And it could be used by Putin to justify all sorts of things, whether that be the use of certain weapons in Ukraine, perhaps um, further clampdowns within the Russian state itself of potential opponents, um, arrests and things like that. Uh, Of course, it could also be used as a um, justification for the trials that we're expecting to see in the coming days, um, um, worryingly, of of Ukrainians. Um, There's been really shocking images, both in Ukraine um, and elsewhere, of cages being erected that are potentially being used to um, uh, for sort of show trials of Ukrainians. And this is all prior, of course, to, as Don mentioned, Independence Day, um, which is, 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 is coming up um, I- imminently. And this, as I say, may well lay the groundwork for, uh, for, for certain Russian actions, which were otherwise may not have been as easily justifiable. Um, uh, justifiable, I should say, in inverted comments, uh, inverted commas. Um, as they would have been had this attack not taken place. And I think I'll leave the last remark on this um, to to um, Galilotti, who, who says that a dead Dujin would have been a malleable martyr. An angry living one could prove a wild card. And I think that's also worth saying here, is that what we don't know, of course, is that whether his daughter was the intended target or whether it was Dujin himself. If it was um, the, the latter and he has survived, then of course there well, well will be unexpected consequences of that when you've got a very incendiary figure like him who will now be in the spotlight in Russia saying all sorts of remarks that no doubt will be... Uh, be being able to use by propagandists and the like, um, that may well have consequences both for the Kremlin but also for the West that are as yet unpredictable. But I've got more, more things I can talk about on this, but no doubt Don will have some thoughts as well. Thanks, Francis. All I'd add is that this is very interesting if, as you say, in the last 20 minutes, the FSB have come out to blame Ukrainian spies. I mean, to acknowledge that or to, to, to push that line... To, to say that Ukraine have been able to penetrate right into... I mean, this wasn't in Moscow. This was just to the west of Moscow. But, I mean, right inside the Russian state. To, to admit that they've got that close and carried out this attack and got away with it. I mean, in, in the Mark Galliotti article, he says that, 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 you know, in the next day or so, we'll probably have some, some wonderfully staged footage of a, of a house raid somewhere in Russia and there'll be a, there'll be a bomb-making factory, etc., etc. But what they've admitted, if they are saying that this was Ukraine, a, a Ukrainian attack is that they got through again. And just as we saw in Saki, and, and actually over the last couple of weeks, these attacks in Crimea um, that show up a failure of Russian air defence or show up a failure of, of the Russian system somehow, whatever caused those attacks, we, we still don't know. Um, but but these are all ad- admissions that something's got through. Something's got through the, the layers. Now, you know, something always gets through. Okay, This is, this is war. There's going to be attacks on, e- on either side. But this attack, this this assassination, whether it was for her or for the father or, or what have you and whatever the message is, but, but to do this so close to the very seat of power in Russia and and to get away with it, unless and until we see some unfortunates be, be uh, grabbed by the FSB, then I think this is absolutely extraordinary. I, I'm not going to add to the speculation about what, who or what it could have been because I, I simply don't know and I'll just be... Adding, there's there's going to be a time for that, and it's not it's not now because uh, we just need to introduce the news and, and talk about what we do know, and um, and so I just I just think this is this is a very 
dangerous game that Russia are playing with, unless it was Ukraine, in which case a very dangerous game they're playing with. Um, but I, I think, as I mentioned at the start, this this growing sense of um, of vulnerability from Russia. If there are attacks now in Crimea all over Russian social media, there's this attack that will be all over social media and the and the and the normal media, the the dreaded mainstream media. So, well, I suppose it is dreaded mainstream media in Russia. But anyway, I move on. I think this is this is this could really backfire on Russia if they blame Ukraine. Then they are admitting that they've had Ukrainian agents operating freely with inside Russia or inside Russia, and I think that that is an extraordinary. Uh, whether it's true or not, an extraordinary um, statement to come out with. I think that's absolutely true. Although, on the other hand, as I say, it can be used as a as an ideological weapon by the regime. Um, even if the Ukrainians weren't responsible, by by this happening in and of itself, can be a useful political tool for what we may see next. But just to echo what you were saying there, actually, Mark um, Galilotti is going to write for us today, um, and uh, looking through the, the notes of what he's going to write. So I think he's writing it as we speak. Um, he's going to talk about to, to Dom's point that, that these are attacks. Who Whoever is responsible, they are playing into this sort of psychological warfare phase of which we are now seeing not only within Russia, but also um, within Crimea as well as the attacks we were talking about last week. These are attacks on sort of Russia's heart, one could say. um, And what happens next is unpredictable as a consequence of that. And I think... Just talking about Crimea specifically, I made this point last week, but I think it is worth underlining, which is that from the perspective of many Russians, Crimea is part of their territory now. You know, it has been annexed since 2015 and is different, is differently treated um, to the rest of Ukraine. I'm not justifying that. I'm not saying that's right, but I'm just saying that that is a fact. And indeed, it's important to say that even Russian dissidents like Navalny see Crimea as part of Russia. Um, And so uh, these attacks that we've been seeing, particularly in Crimea, I would argue are even more significant because it's a clear statement of intent by the Ukrainians to say that, no, no, we do not recognise this, that this is part of our territory. And it's hugely damaging for Putin, too, because he'd claimed that he'd made a fortress out of Crimea. He'd actually used that word. And yet, to Dom's point, if you're then facing the kind of attacks you're seeing, it's clearly that that has failed um, for the world to see. And so there are huge risks inherent in that. And I think, uh, as I say, we are the war is entering now a, dif- a different phase, one that is more psychological, um, one that is now showing statements of intent through these kind of um, actions um, as the war. Uh, is sort of uh, in the in the big grand strategy has sort of ground somewhat to to a halt. But the problem with that, of course, is that there are unintended consequences of this. That we are in uncharted territory uh, that is less predictable, as we've just seen from the actions over the weekend, and and who knows what may, may be an, a result of that. Just very quickly, it's it's quite sobering to realise. You know, we're talking about, um, and we've seen a lot in the last few days of Russian public reaction to attacks now in Moscow and, of course, in Crimea over the past few weeks. And let's not forget, of course, I mean, I've just got a notification on my phone from from our time there, Dom. Um, the air raid sirens have just been sounded in Kyiv a minute ago. Um, so people are being asked to, to move to the shelters. And that, that's something that the Ukrainian public have lived with for for uh, for, for, for six, almost six months now. Sorry, Dom, I know you had a thought you wanted to just come in on. Well, I was just going to finish my, my bit by... by adding to France's point there about how the, the war is moving into a, a psychological... Well, it's always in a psychological area as well. That's that's always there. But as the as the movement on the, the front line, if, if you like, I don't particularly like the expression, but it is, it's, it's easy shorthand now, it works. Um, but as that movement sort of calcifies, not you know, stand fast, whatever may or may not be about to happen in, in the Curzon region, but as the, as the war calcifies, then these other um, unconventional methods come to the fore firstly to keep keep momentum up to keep morale up to keep the uh to keep the the, the stay on the front foot to push the enemy back etc etc and maybe what we're seeing here from from ukraine over the last few weeks with these these unconventional attacks drone strikes whatever they are missiles special forces partisans yada yada um whatever they are is is what you can do when you are exhausted and you've culminated in the heavy metal game, Russia, I think, is also in that position. Uh, they're exhausted and have culminated in the heavy metal game, but they have shown themselves to be much more one-dimensional in their thinking. So, if should we expect some clever, unconventional tactics, unconventional attacks from Russia? Probably not. What do they do? They go up Route One. It's fairly straightforward. It's clunky. And what have they got? 
the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. So I'm I I, I don't want to. As Hamish was saying earlier on, we, you know, we, should, we we are not trying to overblow this and we're not trying to scare people. We're trying to have sensible, considered debate around these issues. But if we are moving into this phase of, of less heavy metal, more unconventional tactics, I, I haven't seen anything to suggest that Russia is, is particularly nuanced and, uh, and nimble of mind to adopt unconventional tactics. I think they're fairly clunky and I, I just worry about what's, uh, what, what they could consider doing with Zaporizhia. Francis, there's one update about German gas. Can you just cover that for us? Keep us up to date there. Sure, yes, just very briefly. Um, Germany has a a good chance of getting through this winter um, due to the drastic measures that it's taken. Uh, That's that's according to its economy economy minister, Robert Habeck. and I just wanted to comment on that, which is, as we were talking about briefly um, a few days ago, Germany has managed to cut back quite considerably on its use of gas. I think it's around 13, 14 percent. So no mean feat um, in a short period of time. Of course, there are huge economic consequences of that. Um, but nonetheless, um, I think that it's, it's to Germany's credit that they have been able to um, to do something to respond to the enormity of the challenge that's, that's been faced. And as I say, this is the great problem of the present moment is that we're not in winter yet, but when we are there, this will be the real, real test of Western resolve. They're saying that in Germany, inflation could reach a 70-year high. As I've already mentioned, energy prices are up 16%. Here in Britain, inflation is up, as of this morning, 18% or is predicted to go that high. I mean, these are astronomically high numbers. And where I am yet to see a response from Western governments that is really matching the severity of that. And of course, the disaster would be that, 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 that Britain and other countries are ill-prepared just quite for the scale of the catastrophe that this could cause for, um, for people and that that could undermine resolve um, for a, what could be a long and harmful winter. But as I say, I don't want to sort of go too much into detail because that's a whole broader question, but I think it is, as I say, the central question of the moment, to, to put it bluntly. Thank you very much uh, for that, Francis. Uh, as I said, I think we're coming to the end of our time uh, together. Dom Nichols, can I get your final thoughts, please? Yeah, thanks. I'm just struck by President Zelensky last night in his nightly address said that in in advance of Wednesday's Independence Day being marked in in Ukraine, 31 years since Ukraine split from the Soviet Union or or the Soviet Union collapsed and Ukraine was independent, um, he warned of, quote, something particularly ugly coming from Russia. Now, he uses his words very wisely. He uses them to galvanise support. He knows that words have power, but he doesn't, or he hasn't so far been known to use hyperbole and and loose language. So I'm, I'm particularly worried by that. I, don't, I think this is going to be a bit of a tough week, to be perfectly honest, because it's not going well for Russia. There's been an, ext- an extreme provocation here by groups unknown, um, and blame being pointed all over the place. We've got the Zaporizhia stuff that we've talked about and these comments from, from President Zelensky about something particularly ugly coming from Russia, I think gives us pause for, for concern. Not trying to overdo it, um, not trying to scaremonger and do the sort of headline grabby stuff. Um, but yeah, I think, I think this, this week deserves, if we can, any more Keep keep our eye on the on the news. I think it's going to be. I think it's going to come. History is going to come at us fast this week. I think. And Francis Sternley, would you like the final thoughts? Sure. Sorry to interrupt you, David. Yes, um, I, I I just wanted to completely echo what Don was saying there. I think that this suddenly feels like a very significant in, in, in week indeed. Um, but for my final thought, uh, there's been another interesting piece published by the Washington Post, uh, another of their long reads, which I think is just worth commenting on. It's essentially talking about the intelligence both in the West and in uh, in Russia uh, and that not only led to the war but also since the war began uh, sort of offers a rare insight really into the activities particularly of the FSB um, and argues that in many ways it bears responsibility for the failed Russian war plan and it talks about how essentially nearly every intelligence service with a stake in the war made consequential misjudgments. Um, obviously, the US spy agencies uh, believed, uh, sort of underestimated, I think it's fair to say, Ukraine's ability to withstand the onslaught. And that may have contributed to their initial hesitation to send heavy and sophisticated weaponry 
Obviously, Ukraine's services appeared to have read too much into signs that Russian forces were ill-prepared for a full-scale combat, resisting Western warnings of an invasion that came within miles of the capital. And of course, fundamentally, Russia's intelligence breakdowns, which seem, according to the article, more systematic due to unreliable sources and disincentives to deliver hard truths to the Kremlin, which ultimately was responsible for this catastrophic um, miscalculations that were in the early weeks of, of, of the war. And it also just, as I say, offers some some interesting uh, snippets as well. I mean, it's, it's too long to read to summarise in full, but it talks about how on February the 8th, uh, Macron said publicly that he'd received personal assurance from Putin that Russia would not escalate the situation. And uh, indeed, we also understand that Germany's spy chief had said days earlier that Putin's decision on whether to act had not yet been made. And it goes into some of the background conversations into more detail about what exactly was um, being said between Moscow and Paris. And it also talks as well about extensive polling conducted by the FSB that showed large segments of Ukraine's population were prepared to resist Russian encroachment. But it seems nonetheless that this was ignored and bypassed. Um, by the FSB um, and indeed it seems that this figure of 48% is being bound around that they asked this question of, of would you resist you know, any military attack and, um, and, and 48% uh, said that they would. And because this was under 50%, this may well have been significant for the decision that was eventually made. I don't know how true that is, but it talks about this potentially in the article as being um, a, a statistic of significance and a misreading of the Ukrainian resolve. So as I say, um, another big read by the Washington Post and I would one that I would recommend um, listeners uh, uh, give it a read. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Charles Gear, And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.